Well, as was mentioned, if you were here last week, uh, there was no heat in the building. Um, we had a, a gas leak, and so of all the people I should have mentioned being thankful for, Emmett McCabe. Uh, he's the one, he and his crew are the reason that we have heat today, and so I appreciate them and all their work uh, this past week to, to get us uh, back online. There was uh, some years ago, uh, we went on vacation uh, to uh, our family had a cabin outside of Gunnison, Colorado. And one morning while we were there, I got up early by myself and I found this trail and I walked up the top of this trail and it was at the head of this valley. And I just, I just sat there by myself for a long time and just watched the sun come up and hit Crested Butte and just kind of track up and fill up this beautiful mountain valley. And it was just beautiful and it was silent. And I could, just, I could just feel my mind just kind of exhale. Because the year before, it had been, it had been, a, it had been a, a year full of upheaval at our church. It was, it was probably my toughest year of ministry. And we had had some parenting challenges in our family. And so it was so nice just to get away and to just kind of let that stuff be behind us and up there, it was tempting to think, you know, if I lived here, I could hike up this mountain every day. I could look at this scenery every day. I could feel this good every day if I lived here. And, you know, I like myself so much better when I'm here. The, Sherry talks about Vacation Scott, who's apparently a lot more fun than I am. He's kind of a cool guy. <laughs> he, only, he only comes around once in a while, but Vacation Scott is a pretty cool guy. And so Vacation Scott was up there thinking, man, if I lived here, everything would be so much better. But of course, if I lived there, I wouldn't have time to climb up that mountain every day because I wouldn't be on vacation. I would have to get a job and I'd have to work and I'd have, to, I'd have all the same bills I had where I came from. I'd have to do everything that I go on vacation to get away from. But isn't it tempting at times like that to think, man, <clears throat> There's got to be this secret equation. If I could just get everything arranged perfectly, if I, if I can just arrange the scenery and the finances and the furniture and the neighbors until everything is just right, that will equal peace. We, we attempt to create contentment with, with, with what we own and where we live and what we do. If I could just get a job like that, if, if I could finally retire, if I could just make that sort of money, if, if I was on the beach, if I had a car like that one, then. But your discontentment is not because of your address or your things or your paycheck. There are unhappy people living in mansions. There are beautiful, rich people that still get divorced. See, it's not like there's, it's not like there's, there's, there's two categories of things. It's not like, well, if I had this list of stuff, then I'd be happy. Because everyone who has this stuff, everyone who lives in that neighborhood, everyone who has the things in this category, they're content. But the people over here who have these things in this other category, they're, they're not going to be happy. They just can't be happy because they don't have the right that, that's, that's not how it works. You cannot tell based on what someone owns or where they live if they are content or not. 
And whatever is, is, is feeding your discontentment right now, it's not because it's in the wrong category. Somebody else would, would be so grateful to have the house that you don't like right now. They can only dream of having a house or an apartment like what you have right now. You know, there are people that drive a car just as old as yours, that looks just like yours, and, and yet they're quite happy. And there's somebody else who does what you do at work, but they take pride in their job. So discontentment is not in our things, but in our hearts. So we carry it everywhere. I mean, wherever you go, there you are. And if you're carrying around a discontented heart, that discontentment is going to go wherever you go, no matter what you have, no matter what you're doing. So to find peace and contentment, it's not going to... It's not going to be changing the equation. It's not going to be changing the location. It's not going to be changing the vocation. To find peace and contentment is going to be changing our heart. And that's where the Ten Commandments lead. Do you realize that? I've, we've been talking about a, a biblical worldview, and the Ten Commandments is where we've, we've been for a while because the Ten Commandments are really genius summary of what a biblical worldview entails. Now, I know that you all in the back can't read this, and that's okay. This is just more for my reference. This stuff will be up on the screen here in just a moment, so don't, don't worry if that's a little too small for you. But I've said before that the, the arrangement of the Ten Commandments is brilliant, and it's intentional, and just even the arrangement is meant to teach us stuff. So of the Ten Commandments, the first four are about loving God. The last six are about loving others. And that, that sequence of loving God first, that is intentional too. We must love God first to love others best. We can't get that swapped around. To love others best, we have to love God first. And so when it gets to how we love others, We've been working through the, the last six commandments for the last several weeks. And let me just remind you of what they say one more time. It starts in Exodus 20, verse 12. <clears throat> Honor your father and your mother, so you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, did you notice there's something different about this last one? The 10th commandment, there's something different about that one versus all the others that have to do with how to love others. Did you notice what the difference was? If you, if you look at them, all the others, when it talks about how to love others, it's about behaviors. It's about actions. You know, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't, don't steal. And when you do those things, it's kind of obvious. You can kind of tell if you've murdered. You, you can kind of tell if you've committed adultery. You can kind of tell if you stole or if you lied. But the last one, do not covet, well, that happens internally in my heart. How do you know if I'm coveting right now? Well, you don't. You, you can't tell. You can't tell if that is in my heart. Now, eventually, it's going to come to the surface. Eventually. And how it usually comes out is in breaking these other commands. 
If I, if I, I, I covet my neighbor's stuff, so I steal it. I covet his wife and commit adultery. A covetous heart is the root of all sorts of sin and misery. Well, remember what James says about that. Where, where, all this, where a lot of this trouble, where it starts, listen to what James says, James 3.16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Then in James 4, 1 and 2, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You, you, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you, you quarrel and you fight. The Ten Commandments structure could be summed up as, you know, don't do this or don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And at the end, the Tenth Commandment, and, and here's why you're doing all this. Let, let's get to the, the source of this. Let's get to the heart of this. The problem is a dissatisfied, covetous heart. And so we cannot love others well until we find contented hearts. It is a discontented and envious, craving heart that results in, in all these selfish, unloving behaviors like, like stealing and fighting and adultery. So what we do? How, how, do we, how do we handle it? Is the, is the answer just to not desire? Is the answer just to, to, to stuff all of those desires down? To just not want anything and then you won't be disappointed? Then, then you won't do anything bad? No. No, that's not the answer. That's not what the Bible says at all. Now, that, that's Buddhism. That's what the religion of, of Buddhism would say. Buddhism said that, that suffering is caused by craving, so the path to, to peace or nirvana is through the absence of desire. A Buddhist ultimate goal is non-suffering, non-feeling, non-existence. That is nirvana. I don't find that very appealing or even realistic, and it's not biblical. For one thing, all desires are not evil. Sexual desire for your spouse is a good impulse, a God-given pleasure. Our desire for food and our ability to taste it as we're eating it and enjoying it, that's, that's God-given. God wants us to have that. It, it's, it's a positive thing. Even wanting what someone else has can be a positive motivator. Now, we're told, do not covet what belongs to your neighbor, but that's not the same as aspiring to achieve what he has also. That's not a bad thing. So, for instance, it, you know, there's a young man. He doesn't have much direction in life, but he sees his buddy who's got this nice truck, and he's got this nice house, and maybe that motivates our directionalist young man to apply himself and start working hard and start saving. Or if, if he sees the marriage that his friend has, and he sees how happy his wife makes his friend, maybe that will motivate him to, to, to find a young woman and, and work to impress her and provide for her, and so he can have the blessing of a wife too. That's not, that's not coveting, and that's not bad. The, the desire to achieve and, and, and to compete and to acquire can all be positive, and it's not at all sinful. God designed us to desire and to hunger. It was God who gave us our senses and the ability to, to experience pleasure and, and delight when our desires are fulfilled. So desires and cravings are themselves not wicked, and they're not wrong. 
Buddhist denial is not the way to contentment. Even in verses that tell us to conquer our desires, even when the Bible does talk about that, I want you to listen to where the Bible tells us to go with those desires. I think one of the strongest statements about that would be Galatians 5.24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, Christians, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Now, first, that sounds like we must kill all our passions and desires. Desires are bad, but that's not what it says. Read it again. It says crucify the flesh. And why does it use the word crucify? Well, that's intentional. Crucifying the flesh, that takes us mentally back to Jesus and the cross. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. He felt all the same desires every human does, but he subjected those desires to the will of God. In the garden, he says, not my will, but yours. So his perfect obedience took him all the way to crucifixion. So as Christians, crucifying our desires doesn't mean acting as if we don't feel them. It doesn't mean just stuffing all that away. It doesn't mean denying all it. It means we do with them what Jesus did. We subject them to God's will. Our fleshly desires don't rule us. God does. So we manage our desires in ways that will honor him, that obey him. So we take our desires to God. We go to God with our desires. So when we desire what our neighbor has, his house, his wife, his stuff, we need to take those desires to God. Because here's what happens if you don't. We've, uh, we've used this poster before. We've said this is <clears throat> a biblical worldview. This is a way to diagram a biblical worldview. Because the Bible tells us it's all about relationships. It's a relationship with God and with others, and with earth. And the, the, the secret to thriving is in understanding those three relationships we're in, with God and with others and with material things. And then the structure of the Ten Commandments reflects this reality because it puts God at the top. It puts God first. Being aligned with God first, better being you know, right with him first, that's the top priority. But when you don't, when you go to someone's house and you notice, hmm, how much nicer their furniture is, and you get back in the car and you pull up the phone and you pull up Zillow, and you look up their address to see how much their house costs. How can they afford that? You think, well, we work harder than they do. And then, and then you start stalking her on Facebook and on Instagram, and you think, we don't take vacations half as nice as this, and her husband treats her so much better. And then that discontent and envy grows into, I deserve better than this. And that ripens into, I need better than this. And now you're in dangerous territory. Now you are right on the border. You're right on the border in your heart where you're deciding what to do with the envy you feel. Now, if you let those desires lead you, you may find yourself justifying stealing and lying and adultery. But what coveting does is coveting says God is not enough. 
He's not coming through for me like he should. He's not showing his love for me like he needs to. So I'm going to have to just start doing stuff on my own, I guess. So if you follow your coveting heart, what you end up doing is you end up flipping this. And now the stuff of earth, the, 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 the created stuff, now that is your greatest desire, your priority. Or maybe, you know, it's, it's your coworker's wife. Maybe she becomes your greatest priority. She is the desire that you're focused on. She is what you are convinced is necessary to make you happy. But the Bible says God is our provider. He is the giver of all good things. He is the one who owns it all anyway. It's his stuff anyway. And he loves us. And he does what is loving always. And he knows what we need. And his timing is perfect. And he has promised if we stay faithful, he will never forsake us, never leave us in a place where we don't have what we need. When we're forced to violate his commands to get what we need. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So if we ignore the God who is the provider of everything, who is all-powerful and in control of everything, who holds the future in his hands, does that sound like a path towards contentment? I don't think so. That doesn't sound like the way to go. If you want to be happy, if you want to be content, going away from God doesn't sound like it's the smartest way to find contentment. If I am looking for contentment, I need to go back to God. I need to take those desires to him. I need to get as close as possible as I can to the, the generous and the wise giver of all good things. Listen to what Paul says is the secret to contentment. Philippians 4. I find this, I find this passage so interesting. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Remember, he's writing this from prison. After he's been in prison numerous times, after he has suffered so many deprivations. And he, and all, he says, you know, I know. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I'm intrigued. I want to hear what's, what's the secret. What's the secret? Because we, we said the secret is not having the right stuff, not living in the right place, not doing the right. We've, we've learned that the secret is not that, that equation that we think we have to assemble for ourselves. So if that's not the secret, he says he knows the secret. How can he be content even in the low times of hunger and need? Here's the secret. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not what he has, it's who he has. The secret to contentment is not having enough stuff or good enough stuff, it's, it's flipping this back around. It's putting God first. It's getting right with God. If he has God, he has all he needs to get him through whatever comes up. Contentment cannot be found without God. You're not going to find it. 
People look so hard. They work so hard to get it and protect it. All that stuff that we're trying to put together that we think if we can just arrange all this and possess all this just right, we'll be content. It's a house of cards. It won't stay up for long. If you want contentment, it's only going to be found in God. So when I feel envy, when I'm coveting what my friend has that I don't, what should I do with those desires? I take them to God. Contentment is not deadening desires, but trusting God with those desires. We're trusting. If we stay obedient to God, he blesses us. If we subject our desires to his commands, if we wait on his timing, if we believe in his goodness and generosity, we'll have what we need when we need it. We can trust him even with our desires, with our coveting, with our jealousy. We can trust what he is doing with us when he doesn't give us what we want, when we want it. We can trust even then that he's doing what's loving. He's doing what's best. He knows. Father knows best. And by the way, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that that apartment or a house that, that you live in, that's not your home. That, that your checking account and your, and your IRAs, that's not how rich you are. Your body and the way that you look and you feel right now, this is not as good as it gets. Have you, have you forgotten? You have another home. You have an inheritance coming. You have a resurrection body waiting. Listen to what James says, James 5, 7, be patient. When you're feeling envious, when you're wondering what God is doing, when you, when, you, when you hate the car you drive, when you can't stand to look at that old kitchen again, when you wonder why everyone else seems to be doing better than you do, when you're feeling lonely, be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits. He, he waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient, because the Lord is coming. You can be grateful and sing praises even during bad times, because the Lord is coming. Now, why does James point us to that? When he says, you, you want to find contentment, you want to find peace, be patient because the Lord is coming. Why does he point us to that day? But what comes when the Lord comes, when he returns? Well, every promise of God fulfilled perfectly and forever. The full onslaught of God's love poured into us. And our inheritance comes. And heaven comes. Scripture wants us to think about heaven. Think of the things of heaven, not the things of earth, because heaven is the answer to so many of our questions. Heaven is the payoff. It's, it's the realized promise. It's the reality we were created to enjoy. James says, let the anticipation of that day anchor you now, feed you now, comfort you now, and establish your heart with confidence Despite what you now lack, 
despite what you don't have right now. I confess, I struggled for many years with contentment about what I was doing in my career and, and where I was living and what I was missing out on. And I think I'm better. I'm not cured. I think I'm better than I was. And you know, what's helped me, probably the best thing that's helped me is I think a lot about heaven. I'm thinking about heaven a lot. I shared with you before, I end when I remember to, and it's, it's most nights I do, when my head hits the pillow, every night I say, that's one day closer to heaven. There's a lot of times I like to imagine what heaven's going to be like. When I'm feeling dissatisfied, I like to just step back and think, what is this scenario going to look like in heaven? How will this be different in heaven? When I feel stressed about, about money or about saving for retirement, I imagine heaven. I imagine being in a place where money is not needed. Money is not an obstacle to anything. When I feel discontented because I'm aware of time slipping away and there's so many things I haven't done, there's so many places I'd like to go to and I haven't go to them and now I probably never will, I'm where time is unending and, and there's no longer limitation. We'll have time there to do everything we don't have time to do now. And this is really, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just being confessing, I'm just confessing, this is really how I think about these things. I mean, you, you, you want to learn how to play an instrument. You want to learn a new language. You want to read good books. You want to finally finish that quilt. <laughs> In heaven, we will never again be limited by time. We will have the capacity to pursue whatever we like time to spend with everyone we love without limits. Imagine what that's like when time never again creeps in on you and, and, and ruins something, takes something from you. And I don't really covet where people live like I used to. Because now I keep imagining my home in heaven. I'm very grateful that I grew up in Montana in one of the most, literally, the most beautiful places on earth. But you know, I'm content now. Wherever I am, forever as longer I'm alive on this earth, wherever that takes me, I think I can be content. Even in Wichita Falls, which is not exactly a, you know, a scenic destination. No one, no one mistakes Montana and Wichita Falls but I'm okay in Wichita Falls. I love Wichita Falls. One reason is you all. But another reason is I'm carrying heaven in my mind all the time. I imagine the hills I'm going to walk one day. I imagine the rivers I'm going to fish there. And if it's heaven, you know the trout fishing is going to be fantastic. And I think about where I'm going to live. And this may, I know this may sound silly to you. This may sound childish. I don't care. I'm just, I'm just confessing. I, I can't wait for you to come visit me in heaven. I can't wait for you to come see the place I'm going to have in heaven. I'm going to have a little farm. I'm going to have an orchard over here. I'm going to have a cozy fire, 
place. I'm going to have this fantastic library. I'm going to read all the books I don't have time to read sitting by that fire. Now, you may think I'm being too literal. You may think my version of heaven isn't spiritual enough. I'm going to disagree with you, though. There is a reason eternity is described as a new earth. Revelation 21.1, it talks about eternity. It talks about what we're going to eventually be in for all of eternity. This is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And it talks about earth and heaven joining. It talks about God coming to live among his people and dwelling with them forever. But the point is, there will be a new earth. Revelation describes heaven with imagery from the Garden of Eden for a reason. We will dwell in a new earth that will be familiar, but so much better. It will feel like home, but the home we always wanted, the home we were made for. And even if I'm wrong on some of this, even if I'm wrong on some of the ways I'm envisioning heaven, I know for sure I won't be disappointed. I know there will be no coveting there because we will have everything we need forever, perfectly, and no fear of any of it being taken away from us. So I share that with you. I share maybe my silly, childish heaven that I carry around with me just to encourage you that when you feel, when you hear those whispers of discontent, I want you to imagine heaven. I want you to be patient and imagine your heart when it's whole and at peace and satisfied and secure because that will be you forever. So let me just end with a reminder of what's coming what we will experience if we trust God with our desires. Revelation 21, this is a vision that John sees of eternity. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. God's going to walk among us like he did in the Garden of Eden. Nothing will separate us from our Father and his love. We can gaze on the face of God. We can ask all our questions. Every hurt will be healed. Death will be no more, and everything will be made new. The earth made new and fresh. We will be made new and complete and whole and strong. And he says in verse 7, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my children. That's your future in Christ. That's what you already have. That's what's just waiting for you if you're right with God through Christ. I love thinking about that. I love imagining that. That keeps me going. Carry heaven in your heart every day 
is one day closer to heaven. In the meantime, here's what I want you to do. I want you to feed your contentment, not your discontentment. You've got those in your heart, and you can choose what you're going to feed. You can choose what you're going to feed and grow, and you can choose what's going to starve. Feed your contentment. Thanksgiving is coming up on Thursday. Here's what I'd like you to do to help you prepare your heart for Thanksgiving. Once you find one thing every day that makes you happy and that is free, I want you to go as, as small as you must. If it's, if it's bird song, clean white clouds against a cobalt sky, the voice of an old dear friend on the other end of the phone, the smell of your baby's skin, the hypnotic warmth of a fireplace, the sound of rain on a tin roof. I want you to taste or see or hear or touch or smell one thing every day that makes you happy. Because when you focus on that stuff, whatever you find, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you to God. All those things that you find on the other side of those is God. Those are God talking to you, touching you with his goodness, reassuring you that behind these small gifts are the vast riches that he'll provide for you. What you really need, he'll provide. What you most desire that's your inheritance for all eternity. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Praise God. Let's stand and sing.